welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Karen Lindsay, and today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. So NetHealth wants to talk about something important, patients and their outcomes, specifically how great it is when your whole practice is rallied around a solid outcomes management program. So to learn how to do all of this, they are teaming up with Photo, which is focused on therapeutic outcomes, for the Clinical Outcomes Summit, October 23rd to the 25th in Knoxville, Tennessee. But it's not just for photo clients. It's a gathering of everyone who believes in the power of outcomes management to drive change for patients, clinicians, practices, and payers. You'll hear success stories and case studies from your peers, and there's going to be motivating and inspiring keynote speakers, including my good friend, Michelle Colley from Performance PT and Daniel Lord from Crossover Health. And Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast listeners get a steep discount on the registration. Use the discount code LITZY, and the full summit pass is only $150. Go to www.outcomesnerd.com to register, learn more, and check out the agenda. And now on to today's episode. I am so happy to welcome to the podcast Dr. Daniel White. He is an assistant professor at the University of Delaware in the Department of Physical Therapy. His research focuses on physical activity and physical functioning in older adults, people with knee osteoarthritis, and people after joint replacement. His research uses large existing data sets to answer questions related to physical functioning and physical activity. As well, he is also conducting clinical trials to lead ways to better promote and increase physical activity in people with knee osteoarthritis and after joint replacement. He is an associate editor for Arthritis Care and Research, an active member in the APTA, the American College of Rheumatology, Rheumatology and ORSI. And in today's episode, we are discussing clinical practice guidelines. What are their roles? What is implementation science? The latest research findings from the Physical Activity Lab at the University of Delaware for which Dr. White is an assistant professor at the University of Delaware in their Department of Physical Therapy, and limitations of physical therapy branding and how we can step into physical activity space. So I want to thank Dr. White for coming on, for talking all about clinical practice guidelines, the evidence behind them, and how and why they should be used. So everyone, please enjoy. Hey, Dan, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Thanks. Great to be here. And now today we're going to be talking, amongst other things, um, implementation science. So before we go any further, can you give a definition of what implementation science is? Absolutely. Uh, So implementation science, the definition is the scientific study of methods to promote the systematic uptake of research findings and other evidence-based practice into routine practice. and to imp- and hence to improve the quality and effectiveness of health services. So essentially, it is bridging the gap uh, between science and practice, uh, and it is taking uh, things that we find in laboratories and in clinical studies, and um, literally implementing them into real-world uh, clinics where most physical therapists work. 
Right. So it, then my other question was, why should the average PT care, which I think you just explained that. So we need to care about implementation science because this is how we're getting what researchers do in the lab to our real world situations and our real patients, correct? Yeah, I, I think um, I think practicing as a physical therapist, you know, you can look around and a lot of people do a lot of different things and a lot of things seem to work. Um, and I think uh, if we want a a game changer in our practice um, that is going to come from uh, systematically studying people and understanding what are the underlying uh, critical ingredients of our practice that that really work and the best thing we have made up to date to answer that sort of question of you know what is it that really works are um, uh, clinical practice guidelines mm -hmm. uh, that is the essentially the best body of evidence um, over uh, that has been reviewed uh, by a panel and vetted and made to uh, be digested by the everyday clinician um, and, and implementing uh, these clinical practice guidelines um, are, are really the, the key element that is going to lead to a game-changing opportunity for, for us as a profession. And when you talk about clinical practice guidelines, I know sometimes people think that you're doing sort of, it's cookie cutter. And what do I need to follow a cookie cutter recipe for? Because all of my patients are different. So can you speak to that? Yeah, no, that, that, that is a great point. Um, okay, so on the one hand, um, I, there is definitely a, art to physical therapy and the clinical practice guidelines is, and evidence-based practice is by no means trying to take that away. Um, it's evidence-based practice in general is not cookbook medicine. Cookbook medicine. Uh, it is combining the uh, three things and one is what the evidence says, but two, it is, uh, can, it also combines what the therapist's experiences are and then finally, it's what patients' preferences and, uh, and what their feelings are on the whole thing. And it's a combination of all three. Uh, it is literally the definition uh, of evidence-based practice. And these clinical practice guidelines um, are definitely consistent with that uh, EBP model. So we, they are not directions uh, or, they're, or they're not instructions they're guidelines. They're, they are ways of helping people uh, make informed decisions. Um, and at a minimum, if you consider yourself an expert clinician, knowing what the clinical practice guidelines are uh, is a big leg up uh, and definitely key to uh, helping our profession. Doesn't necessarily mean you ascribe them to every single patient. Uh, no, that's not what evidence-based practice is. But being aware of them is by definition, in my opinion, being a, being a good clinician. So can you give us an example of one of these clinical practice guidelines? Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, one of the common patient populations that people treat uh, is low back pain. And uh, Tony Delito uh, and his colleagues at uh, University of Pittsburgh and elsewhere uh, developed uh, clinical practice guidelines for low back pain uh, and published this in JOSPT uh, in 2012. 
and basically uh, in, in their paper uh, described that, you know, the purposes of these CPGs are first to describe what EVP is for uh, physical therapy practice, uh, and then also to classify and define common musculoskeletal conditions uh, from which, um, from this classification uh, criteria, uh, inter specific interventions are, uh, are devised. So for an example, so I, I don't treat <laughs> blow back pain. This is not my area. So for, uh, forgive me for, um, or just forgive me for giving a, a guess here, but um, the uh, classification, diagnosis classification for low back pain, one example uh, is uh, lumbosacral segmental somatic dysfunction. Uh, and this is uh, uh, associated with an ICF diagnosis of acute low back pain with uh, mobility deficits. And uh, uh, Tony goes on to saying uh, that there's um, certain clinical findings with this, including acute low back pain, uh, buttock or thigh pain, restricted lumbar range of motion, uh, and lower back pain and uh, lower extremity related um, symptoms with provocation. Uh, and then from that, there are specific interventions that I'm not going to get into uh, that are uh, um, uh, are supposed to be supposed to be had, and that is unique from a different classification. So a different classification of low back pain is subacute low back pain with mobility deficits, which is uh, highlighted by having um, basically not acute but subacute patient uh, subacute pain, and the symptoms are produced with end range spinal motions, and there's a presence of uh, thoracic lumbar or pelvic girdle um, uh, mobility deficits. Uh, and then he goes on and there's different, these different classification criteria from which there are very specific interventions you're supposed to do. So it's classification and then uh, intervention based on that. And essentially um, uh, that is in, in an ideal world uh, what uh, um, a CPG should do. However, you're always going to have the patient that really doesn't fit into one or the other. Let's mm -hmm. have somebody who is not quite acute, but they're not quite subacute. So what do you do? And I think being able to first even make that distinction, you have to be aware of the, the clinical practice guidelines. So knowing that, okay, uh, maybe it's going to be a combination of these two interventions because this person doesn't fit into either one. But see how that uh, approach is already a leg up from not knowing what CPGs are to begin with and what are common classifications. If Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks so much for using that as a really great example for people. And when you're talking about different CPGs, I know that the Academy of Orthopedics, which used to be the orthopedic section of yep. the American Physical Therapy Association. They all have these different names now. It's just made it all so, so much more confusing. <laughs> yeah. um, but now, uh, obviously big proponents of the uh, clinical practice guidelines. But if I wanted to, if I'm the average clinician and I want to find some of these guidelines, where do I go? How do I, how do I find them? Sure. So all the published uh, clinical practice guidelines for orthopedics are on uh, the... Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy's uh, main webpage, which is um, orthopt.org, orthopt.org, and uh, there's a banner that says CPGs, and you just click on that, and you can get right to the um, uh, to the to the, all the published CPGs. 
awesome. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this episode so that if people need it, one click and we'll take you right there. So there's no excuse to not know these CPGs after listening to this podcast then, because we're going to make it really easy for you. And now... <clears throat> You just gave us a good example of how CPGs can work in clinical practice. Are there times where maybe they don't work so well, or or is there a downside, I guess is what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I mean, again, going back to your original question of, you know, is this cookie-cutter medicine, and it's, it's not, uh, and again, since EVP is that combination of patient preference, uh, the provider know-how uh, and what the evidence is. I mean, there's going to be situations where, you know, a situation's weighted much more towards um, uh, a patient's preference. Like they don't want you to do manipulation or uh, maybe they want um, something specific and you're like, well, uh, that's really not called for in this case. And so you don't do the intervention that's prescribed or that the CPG recommends. Um, and that's okay. That's, we're, we're not here to tell people uh, to command them what to do. They're, they're coming to us for help, and uh, patient preference is a large part of uh, evidence-based practice. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, that's the, best, that's the best example I can think of. Yeah, and, and I think another, if you're looking at your clini clinical experience as one of the legs of that stool, if you will, and the patient doesn't have a preference, yet you're sensing as a clinician that there's some trepidation on the patient's part, there's some fear. Uh, if you were to, like you said, we'll take a manipulation as an example, then using your provider know-how, you would say, you know, this is not the right time or place for this. And right. so I think you've got all of that in combination. So the CPGs is not a cookie cutter. Oh, just because A, B, C, and present, you have to do treatment B or treatment A or B, but instead it's giving you a way to maybe differentially diagnose and a way to, you know, be able to maybe give your patient an explanation as to what's going on and then use your judgment, use the patient preference and the, evidence to then guide your treatment. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, you know, um, when you just meet somebody, you try to figure out who they are, right? And you try to figure out what kind of personality they are. And there's some sort of structure or rubric people use, like, let's say there's introverts and extroverts. Is this an introvert or extrovert? In the CPG, uh, the first thing that it does is provide you a framework of saying, well, what kind of types of people are there with this type of pathology? You know, they, a type of person that has, um, I don't know, this type of, this type of disorder or, or this type or another type of disorder. And through, from that diagnosis of providing a classification, you can, there are clear treatments associated, uh, with that. Uh, so back to the party analogy, you know, if you're dealing with an introvert, you know, you, you know that they're not going to be super bubbly and all over you. <laughs> you have to kind of bring things out of them and uh, maybe take it easy and, you know, take it on the slow road uh, versus if someone's an extrovert, maybe they're going to be dwelling all, doing all the talking and uh, you can uh, just be an active listener and be very interested in what they're saying uh, because they're the extrovert and perhaps, you know, that that's kind of how it goes. Um, and the, the CPGs is essentially just 
Uh, it is the, in the party analogy, a way of just navigating through uh, our clinical practice uh, to provide best care. Uh, and, you know, I, I think another um, uh, medical example that really um, stays fresh in my mind is uh, sort of life-saving approaches to um, uh, acute MIs. And uh, it wasn't the, the sort of protocol for or clinical practice guidelines for um, myocardial infarction uh, weren't developed uh, when necessarily uh, right after science discovered that, you know, look, if you, um, you do X, Y, and Z, you can actually save someone's life. It came, that came much, much later. And it wasn't until um, uh, the, I think it was at uh, uh, University and Hospital in Chicago, um, uh, implemented these sort of CPGs for life-saving approaches to MI, that the death rate for uh, acute MIs went way down. Uh, and all the re medical residents followed uh, the CPG for uh, treating acute MIs. And uh, that systematic approach is what made care better. Uh, obviously, in physical therapy, we're not talking about life or death, but these CPGs have been vetted and uh, are, uh, are an approach that, if systematically used, will produce uh, better outcomes. So, yes, it's, you know, EBP. I'm not changing my story here. EBP is obviously patient preference, a provider experience, as well as the evidence. But when applied systematically, um, which means be at minimum aware of what the CPGs are, they should produce uh, better outcomes uh, system-wide. Yeah, and thank you. I think that was, I love the party analogy and comparing it to that medical example really kind of makes the CPGs a little bit clearer. And hopefully people will now not look at them as some sort of cookie cutter program, but instead as a way to help inform you of your practice, which I think is, yeah, I think it's great. And now, all right, so let's move on from CPGs. Let's talk about I'm kind of interested in what you're doing next. So you are the director of the physical activity lab at the University of Delaware. So let us in on some of the things that you guys are working on, if you can, you know, I understand you can't say everything, but yeah. what are some things that you're working on that you feel like will be part of future implementation science for the average physical therapist treating patients like myself. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break here from our sponsors and we'll be right back. Let's talk about something important, patients and their outcomes. If you love to nerd out on this kind of talk like I do, the best industry event around outcomes management is happening from October 23rd to the 25th and it's the Clinical Outcomes Summit. It's hosted by Photo, but it's not just for Photo clients. It's a gathering of everyone who believes in the power of outcomes management to drive change for patients, clinicians, practices, and payers. And the best part, healthy, wealthy, and smart podcast listeners get a steep discount on the registration. The full summit pass is only $150. At that rate, go ahead and bring your entire team. Go to www.outcomesnerd.com and use the discount code LITZY. That's L-I-T-Z-Y. Hope to see you there. Um, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, you know, for, for my, my whole goal is just to get patients better. And um, I worked in inpatient uh, acute 
uh, acute rehab uh, for several years. And I always wondered, you know, after I got people independent with bed, med mobility, bed mobility transfers and ambulation, you know, would they actually uh, take those, you know, newfound independence uh, and actually resume their daily activities uh, and be active in the home? Uh, and that led me to really thinking a lot about this notion of uh, physical activity or, you know, how much do people do? And so um, in the area I study, uh, is, it's osteoarthritis. And osteoarthritis is a, a serious disease that uh, is associated with uh, higher rates of mortality. Uh, it's common, uh, affecting millions of people. And one of the main, the only definitive treatment for osteoarthritis uh, is uh, total knee replacement. Now, after total knee replacement, people do great with improving their pain uh, and increasing their function. Uh, but there's many systematic studies that, that show in terms of physical activity, people aren't doing more. Uh, they're doing just as little as they did before. Uh, and I think that's a real missed opportunity uh, for physical therapists. Um, uh, and I think there's a great opportunity to talk about, you know, being more active and helping patients. And it really doesn't take that much. It's just a, hey, so, you know, how much are you doing every day? Um, with uh, smartphones and the use of Fitbits, uh, counting steps per day is actually a, an incredibly effective uh, way to uh, increase, or one, to see where people are at in terms of physical activity, and two, to increase how much activity uh, people are doing. So just like if you're trying to um, you know, lose weight, you, you usually have a scale and you wanna see how much, you know, how, what you're, where you're at and what progress you made, uh, using a pedometer, or um, using a Fitbit monitor to count your steps is an analogy, an analogous way of doing the exact same thing. Uh, so at the University of Delaware, we are studying ways to, um, what are the best ways physical therapists and practical ways physical therapists can increase activity in people uh, with knee replacement. Uh, and what we've done is we published, uh, recently published a study that basically found that um, one, it's very feasible uh, to one talk about physical activity and do a really quick intervention uh, for people after knee replacement uh, by simply uh, giving them a Fitbit monitor uh, um, and seeing how many steps per day they're walking and then increasing that number of steps per day. Um, what uh, our target goal uh, is uh, 6,000 steps per day uh, in a study we did uh, uh, several years ago, we found people with knee osteoarthritis who walked at least 6,000 steps per day uh, were much less likely to develop function limitation uh, than people who walked uh, less than 6,000. So we, that's where we use the 6,000 steps per day. Uh, I was just going to ask that question. Yeah, that's that's where we have the that's where we have the goal uh, set up, and uh, uh, we based since since there's a, a, a health outcome associated with 6,000 steps. Uh, we ask patients to, uh, that's our goal, and we start, we see where people are walking, um, and then we start to increase their steps uh, by 5 to 10% per week. So if you're walking 2,000 steps, uh, we increase it by um, uh, uh, 500 uh, to 1,000 steps, so, sorry, uh, 500 to um, 100 to 200 steps uh, per day more. Uh, and then the next week we see where they're at and we increase it again by another five to 10%. Uh, so 
Uh, and what we found uh, doing this intervention in physical therapy is that uh, one year after discharge uh, from physical therapy, so they've had um, no physical therapy and no intervention, uh, people pretty much maintain the gains they made uh, in physical activity, and their gains are pretty substantial. Uh, there was a high percentage of people that met the 6,000 steps per day goal uh, and maintained that uh, a one year out in a preliminary study we did. And we are currently collecting more data to, um, to look at this uh, in a larger sample to have a little more robust results. Um, and um, uh, in talking back with the theme of implementation science, what our next step is to do is to implement this uh, intervention uh, in real-world physical therapy clinics. We recognize, you know, at the University of Delaware, we have a, we have a fantastic physical therapy clinic. Um, but, you know, our, our clinicians uh, uh, and the type of patients that come here uh, don't represent a cross-section of the entire country. Uh, sure. We want to see what the real, what, whether this intervention can work in real-world clinics, and we've partnered um, with uh, a clinic in Lancaster, PA, called Hearts Physical Therapy, and we're looking at uh, developing an uh, implementation um, uh, of our intervention at, at that clinic. Uh, to see, you know, how this takes, uh, what's the uptake with clinicians, what are the barriers, what are the uptake with patients, what are the barriers, and how can we make this thing, uh, this evidence-based practice um, approach actually work? So yeah. that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I was, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, hmm, does it matter? Like, these people know that they're in a study, so is that their incentive to you know, continue on with getting these 6,000 plus steps in a day because, you know, we all want to show the teacher that we're good at what we do. Yeah. Right? And, yep. then, and then the question is, is that enough, like you said, you followed them for a year to really make that a lifestyle change? And, yeah. and maybe after a year it is. Yep. No, th those are good questions. Um, so in terms of the um, uh, sort of in terms of like a Hawthorne effect where, where you, you're, you know, you're just doing this because you know you're in the study, um, we um, are, we, well, first we, we do have a control group uh, that wears the monitor uh, and they did not have the intervention, but we are monitoring their physical activity and, physical activity and they know it. And the intervention group uh, in our uh, previously published study uh, in arthritis care and research um, that the intervention group still is walking almost double of what the control group does uh, one year out. So that that's you know that's notable. Um, and then in terms of um, uh, uh, I forgot what your second question was. Oh, it was um, did you find that? I mean, one year is a long time. And at that point, do you feel like it has shifted to just a lifestyle change? Yeah, no, that's, yes, that, and that's the encouraging part. Like one year out, that's a, that's a pretty good outcome um, for, for not having any contact with, you know, health, well, not having your original physical therapy for mm -hmm. your replacement. And uh, yeah, that's, that's incredibly encouraging um, for a long-term outcome and actually thinking that there might be large behavioral change. Um, another interesting thing with our preliminary study is that we looked at the um, adherence uh, uh, or the fidelity of treatment uh, in the physical therapy clinic. And what that means is how often did physical therapists tell the patient um, 
about, you know, ask them about their step goals and ask them about, uh, you know, how they're doing. And it actually wasn't that great. It was around 50%. So uh, it wasn't that this intervention was, you know, so well uh, taken. It, in, in my mind, it was more that the patients really uh, grabbed onto this and saw that, you know, look, the, these, this monitor tells me exactly where I'm at. And in qualitative studies we've done or interviews we've done after the um, intervention, the patients, by and large, they say, look, I know where I'm at, that this monitor tells me, and I know when I have a good day, and I know when I have a bad day, and what I need to do to make a difference between the two. That's great. And, and if you can get that from the monitor, the Fitbit, or the pedometer, or whatever it is that you're using, then I think that's a huge win, <clears throat> excuse me, a huge win, not just for mobility, which obviously we know we need as, as we get older and especially after knee replacements, but for a whole host of other health reasons as well. Yep. Yep. Exactly. The, the, um, I was just lecturing uh, yesterday to um, a newly minted uh, rheumatology fellows at UPenn uh, in Philly and uh, talking about physical activity. First, it was interesting to know that um, none of them knew what the physical activity guidelines are, which maybe, you know, most people don't know what they are, but it's 150 minutes of uh, moderate intensity uh, activity per week uh, you're supposed to do, um, or 75 minutes a week of vigorous intensity. Right. Uh, and and uh, the reason why these guidelines are so important is that the uh, benefits of health, of, of being physically active, are far-reaching. Uh, they vary. They they range from uh, not only improved strength and flexibility, uh, but you also have uh, cardiovascular benefits. Uh, you have uh, mental health benefits. Uh, there's less chance of depression. There's less chance of weight gain. Uh, there are a, a lot of uh, far-reaching effects. Even so that uh, the American College of Sports Medicine jokes that if you could put this exercise, the benefits of exercise into a pill, you would have a blockbuster pill. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone would take this pill. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's uh, definitely uh, a, a, a huge um, benefit to be, to, to be active. Uh, and then the second thing is that, you know, for a physical therapist, you know, is, is that something we should address? I mean, that could be something that yes. typically, you know, <laughs> Yeah, typically, well, therapists, you think the patient comes in, you know, they have their complaints and, you know, let's talk about, you know, reducing your pain and increasing your range and then getting you back to, you know, where you where you were at. Um, but uh, a recently published study in physical therapy actually surveyed uh, patients and said, you know, what are, how, what do you feel physical therapists should talk about? And they asked them a range of things, uh, including weight and uh, diet. Uh, and physical activity. And by and large, it was 90 plus percent of patients said, I want my physical therapist to talk about physical activity. That is what they're there for. You know, that, that is a, a main major reason uh, I'm here and I want them to, to ask me about it and to counsel me on it. So I think that's something we should, you know, to embrace and understand, you know, what our guidelines, um, this 150 minutes a week, uh, understand that um, uh, and understanding, you know, what are steps per day? What, what are sort of major uh, benchmarks for, for steps per day? You know, uh, we oftentimes people say 10,000, but, you know, uh, we found earlier that 6,000 for people mm -hmm. with knee osteoarthritis is, is a, a meaningful benchmark. And then, you know, and the last thing I'll say about the physical activity thing is that 
um, American College of Sports Medicine in their physical activity, or sorry, the physical activity guidelines from the Department of Health and Human Services, um, you know, their, their major recommendation in it, uh, before the time one is that it's the saying that some is good, but more is better that there's a dose response relationship between how much activity people do and their, their health benefits. So even getting somebody uh, who's completely sedentary to doing at least walking for five to 10 minutes a day, mm -hmm. is a huge change uh, in their health outlook and risk for um, uh, future um, uh, poor health outcomes. So uh, that is a, a major thing that you know PTs need to keep in mind is if I can get this person who I know is sedentary just to do something and, and adopt that, uh, that could be a huge gain and a huge win uh, for uh, for this patient. Yeah, and and I think that the physical therapy profession needs to really step up and be the people to step into this space. I mean, this is this is what we do. This is our space, you know. We should be grabbing those patients who maybe have knee OA but don't need a knee replacement yet. Yeah, my, we should uh, be stepping in. That's our jobs. That's what we should be doing. We should be working with obese or sedentary people of any age before they have to come and see us for an injury. Yep, yep, exactly. My um, my doctoral student um, uh, Meredith uh, Christensen, who uh, worked with uh, Jillian Hawker. Uh, at the University of Toronto to do this qualitative study uh, on, uh, on primary care physicians. And essentially the question was, why don't primary care physicians recommend exercise um, and uh, uh, physical activity to patients with knee osteoarthritis? Although, despite the fact that every single clinical practice guideline for knee away recommends you know, exercise, uh -huh. by and large, the um, primary care physicians uh, were, the, were saying, well, we don't know what to recommend. We're not the experts. And uh, they, they would like to refer their patients to PT, but it's not reimbursed uh, up in Canada. So, you know, I, I think this further underscores the notion that as physical therapists, we should own the physical activity sphere. We should be the ones that people think of, of like, you know, well, I want to be active, um, but I have some problems. W what do I do? Go see a physical therapist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We are highly educated individuals who know more about biomechanics, more about kinesiology than anybody else in the clinical sphere. And we are the best place to make exercise uh, and physical activity recommendations to people uh, of all types, uh, more so than any other health provider. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more with that. And, and in my opinion, and, and my hope is that physical therapy really starts to move toward that in the very, very near future. Because boy, could we make a big impact in the lives of, of uh, people around the world if, yeah. we're, if we're that sort of first, um, first line of defense, if you will. Yeah, yep. And isn't it amazing that like, it's so, I, I love that you brought up, well, it's not covered by insurance, but people will go and pay for a trainer or a massage therapist, a Pilates yoga. And it's not knocking any of those professions at all because I think they're all very valuable. Um, but people will pay for that and not say, well, can you turn into my insurance? Yeah. 
Yep. And then when it comes to physical therapy, where you know we we know all this stuff, we have the guidelines, we have the clinical prediction rules, we have the education, and and uh, it's just not something that people are willing to put money down for. Yeah, I think. Um, uh, well, there's two things. Uh, one, um, I think that um, I think we pe people will pay <laughs> if they see value in it. And yes. I think that it's not that we don't have value, but I don't think we're marketing ourselves well as physical mm. uh, to the larger community. Uh, so um, um, going back to the implementation science, the uh, uh, CoStar uh, sponsored uh, imp implementation uh, conference and workshop, implementation science conference and workshop in Providence, Rhode Island this past March. Uh, and the president of the uh, APTA came and spoke there. And he uh, said that, you know, for us as physical therapists, we're really lacking in the sales and marketing uh, sphere. And one of the reasons why is uh, because, well, one of the things is we all call ourselves physical therapists. Uh, but what that means is very different uh, depending on where you work. So for instance, you know, a, a, a patient is going to have a, a view of what a physical therapist is mm. at their first contact. So if they see a physical therapist working in a school, well, they'll think all PTs work in a school. <laughs> or right. if they see them at the acute care after a major MI, well, then they think they only work at acute care. But, you know, marketing that we actually are uh, versed in many areas uh, is, is uh, a challenge we have. And I don't know if that means we start to call ourselves a sports specialist or, you know, cardiac specialist or, or what, but, you know, something along the lines of marketing our idea or marketing our expertise better is a, a key area uh, of need. Um, and then the second thing is, um, you know, I, I think it's okay to ask people to pay for things. Uh, I think if, in, our, in my area, uh, in knee osteoarthritis, people will pay five to $10,000 for uh, stem cells or PRP injections. And, you know, the evidence behind that is, well, let's play it politely, much lower than what the evidence is for exercise in, uh, in mm -hmm. osteoarthritis. All right. And, and it's just incredible that, you know, if someone's going to lay down that sort of cash, you know, I think there is a definite market out there for um, um, uh, services that are viewed as valuable and having a physical activity or exercise prescription that's tailored to you know individual needs you know is it is a clear area of opportunity for our profession uh for people with chronic diseases and you know i think is a a, a space that we should definitely uh, pick up and, and be in yeah there's no question i could not have said it better myself and now before we wrap things up here it's the same question i ask everyone and that is knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to yourself fresh out of school? Um, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, uh, I think uh, the advice I'd give myself is, um, yeah, just do your best to make your patients better. I think that's, that's all it is. And, you know, um, at the University of Delaware, we, we have um, a large, um, we have people here that um, work in very different um, uh, outputs. So we have our clinical faculty uh, that are working, uh, doing 
a bulk of the uh, teaching uh, to, to the students. And then we have research faculty uh, or tenure track that, that teach the PT students, but all have our own research lines. And then we have clinicians that are working in the clinic. Um, so very different outputs, but our goal is all unified. And that is just to make patients, help patients get better that, you know, and from the clinical side, we're, you know, focused on excellence in research or excellence in teaching students the best and latest up-to-date things and the most effective ways to teaching them so they remember uh, not only to pass the test, but to have successful careers. Um, and so that's, and then from a research perspective, we're trying to look for, you know, what are game-changing discoveries to help uh, treat people and help them get better. Uh, and then the clinicians are implementing that on a daily basis uh, at, the, at the University of Delaware. And, you know, again, what makes us, I think, um, what I think is a prideful point is that we're all um, um, uh, aligned in our goals with trying to get people better. Uh, and so that's something that I, I guess, um, you know, I, I've always described to as a, as a, as a, both as a therapist, as a doctoral student, and, and now as a clinician scientist is just trying to, you know, my major goal, major goal is just to help people get better. So hopefully yeah. that's a good answer. <laughs> that's a wonderful answer. Thank you so much. And where can people get in touch with you if they have questions? Uh, sure. So uh, my email address uh, is dkw at udel.edu. That is D as in Dan, K as in Kent, W as in White at uh, udel.edu. Uh, and uh, feel free to email me anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for breaking down the clinical practice guidelines and implementation science. And I love the stuff you're doing in your lab. So thanks for sharing. Great. Thanks so much for having me. And everyone else, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. A huge thanks to Dr. Dan White for coming on the program today. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor for today's episode, NetHealth. So NetHealth wants you to come to the Clinical Outcomes Summit, October 23rd to the 25th in Knoxville, Tennessee. You'll hear from rehab therapy pros from hospitals and private practices as they celebrate, examine, and define outcomes management. They've got some great keynote speakers this year, including my good friend Michelle Colley from Performance PT and Daniel Lord from Crossover Health. Healthy, wealthy, and smart podcast listeners get a steep discount. Use the discount code LITZY, and the pass is only $150. Go to www.outcomesnerd.com. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.